Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's guest is Eduardo Brasino. Eduardo is the CEO of Growth.How and the co-founder of Mindset Works. He's also an author and professional speaker. We discuss his new book, The Performance Paradox, in which he provides guidance for how leaders can create a culture of growth where experimentation and feedback are encouraged and learning is integrated into the everyday. In our conversation, Eduardo shares how to blend learning and performance, strategies for giving and receiving feedback, and his thoughts on the importance of failure and having a growth mindset. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Eduardo, welcome to 12 Geniuses. It's great to be here. Thank you, Don, for having me. I'm very excited to have this conversation with you. Let's just get started with your background and how you became interested in growth mindset. And we'll talk about your new book, The Performance Paradox. Sure. I grew up in Venezuela, where you have been to the Amazon. Uh, but when I was 16, my dad got transferred to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and I finished junior and senior year of high school there. And so I worked hard to get into a great school. And then I learned about investment banking when I was in college. And I ended up working in Wall Street for two years in investment banking. And then I joined a venture capital firm. And I ended up in Silicon Valley investing in, in, a, in a very like large and well-regarded VC firm in, in technology companies. And it was amazing. It was like the dream, you know? But a few years into it, I got sick. I was kind of angry for some reason late at night one day. And for whatever reason, I'd never done this before. I, I started taking it out on the keyboard. I was just working and, and I just started like keep continuing to type, but typing hard. And my thumb started to hurt. And then it kind of, it was weird. I was like, oh, I'm so silly. Like I injured myself. But the next day my forearm was flaring and I was like, okay, I just need some rest. And I didn't go away, it got worse over time. So I ended up going to the doctor and that started a huge saga where I was continuing to get worse. And I met some people who had the same condition as me. It was a repetitive strain injury called myofascial pain syndrome, which took a, a few months to diagnose, but they, the people I met couldn't use their hands for more than 10 minutes a day. So that was scary for me. I didn't know like how to do things without my hands. And it gave me a sense of kind of mortality of, Hey, like I might not be able to use my hands. So like, I better do something useful with them. And I, at the time had the sense that I, I got the sense of, wow, like if I die or I'm not able to become disabled tomorrow, like nobody will care. Like if I, if I'm not doing this job, somebody else will do it. The great startup companies will get funded anyway, because there was so much capital in the industry. And I realized, oh man, I, I need to, I need to learn how to heal. And, and this was something that was hard to diagnose. Like doctors couldn't figure out what it was, how to treat it. So that was a big saga, but I realized I need to learn how to heal, but I also need to learn how to live and like what I can do that is going to make me feel like I'm being a good steward of my life and making a good use of life. So that embarked me on a, on a journey. And you asked how I, how I started working on growth mindset. I went to grad school to Stanford to, to like figure out what is something that I could do that I would feel is useful to other people. And I was interested in social entrepreneurship because I had learned, even though I grew up 
in not exposed to entrepreneurs at all. In when I was working in venture capital, I met lots of entrepreneurs and I learned about social entrepreneurship. So I was like, this is very much out of my comfort zone, but it's something that sounds really cool. And so I went to school to to explore that and I I explored a bunch of different projects. And I was introduced to Carol Dweckes, a, a professor at Stanford, who had developed with a former colleague, Lisa Blackwell, uh, a program for middle school students uh, to develop a growth mindset and effective learning strategy. So we started an organization together. We co-founded Mindset Works uh, to help schools foster a growth mindset culture. And your partner is an educator and, and does growth mindset in, in their school. Uh, it's, it's pretty big in, in schools. That's where it first started. Um, and through that, I eventually became a public speaker, which was not my plan, um, by doing a, a TEDx talk that became pretty popular. And I, I started being asked to do more and more speaking. And, and surprising to me, I enjoyed speaking. I be, I, 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 people appreciate my work, and, and that's what's become kind of my full-time job now more with companies, especially like companies of all sizes, but including some of the largest companies in the world who want to build a growth mindset culture, a learning culture. So, you know, they engaged me to, to help them do that. It sounds like early in your career, you had an existential crisis and you, you were trying to figure out your purpose. Do you feel like you're in alignment with your purpose now? Yeah, I feel one of the things that I wanted to feel back then was that if I, hit, well, if I was hit by a boss the next day, that I would feel like I made a good use of my time on earth. And that's how I feel right now. I feel like if I'm hit by a bus, I, I don't have regrets. I'm making the most of every day. Well, you have two very successful TED Talks that I'm aware of and this book coming out, The Performance Paradox. So you've left behind some pr pretty powerful educational tools uh, for, for generations to come. So congratulations to you. I want to ask you about The Performance Paradox. And why don't you just define what that term means? Yeah, so the performance paradox is the counterintuitive phenomenon that if we solely fixate on performing, our performance suffers. So if we're just trying to perform, we actually don't perform as well. Uh, and so what does that mean? It, it helps to kind of get out of our context in our everyday context and, and examine what fantastic people do, the most competent people in the world in domains where competence can be objectively measured, how do they become so good and how do they perform so well? So if you look at athletes or performing arts or people who play chess, the way we tend to think that the way that people become good at what they do is by spending a lot of time doing that activity. Like if we just you know play chess for 10 years, we'll be really good at chess. So if we play tennis for 10 years, we'll become very good at tennis, but that's not how improvement happens. That's not how we increase our performance. So if you think about, for example, you know, a, a, an athlete who is playing a championship final, if you're having trouble with a particular move, you're going to avoid that move during that match because you want to win. But after the game, you're going to go to your coach and say, coach, I have to work on this particular move. And that's a very different activity, very different area of attention and focus than what we do during the game. And the reason these people become so competent and so expert and so good is that they, it's because of how they engage in what I call the learning zone, which is when we're going beyond the known and being deliberate about improvement, rather than trying to just get things done as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes, which actually is what most of us are doing most of the time, right? In our work, in our personal lives, we are most of the time just, just worried about or, or concerned about getting things done as best as we know how, trying to minimize mistakes. 
And that leads to improvement when we're novices, when we, kn we don't know very much. If we just try, we'll get better over time. But then once we get proficient, we stagnate. And, and so in order to continue improving and become fantastic at something, we have to be we have to be doing things in a way that's also going to lead to improvement. And that's different than just doing things. Let's turn to performers and athletes, because we may think about the performance zone just being when they're playing a game or when they're having a show. But practice is a form of performance as well, particularly for athletes, because they're vying for playing time and that sort of thing. But but can you talk a little bit about how some of the great performers distinguish between the performance zone and the learning zone? Yes. So, you know, the, the clearest distinction would be when you are in a high stakes match and every moment you can, you want to try to make the choices that are going to have the highest probability of success, right? So if you do have a choice of shooting between with your right leg or your left leg, you're playing soccer and you're in a match, like if you can choose what, if you can shoot with your stronger leg, you're going to do that, right? But in practice, and when you're, when we're fully focused on improvement, then you might do other things. You, you might kind of try to take your, your strong leg to the next level. That might be doing weights or doing kind of drills. If you're not miss, if you're still missing that top right corner, like just focusing on how do I kind of run really quickly and, and try to hit that top right corner, right? To be very deliberate about one specific skill that I'm trying to improve, or you might work on your left leg shooting, or you might then instead of instead of playing offense, you might play defense so that you can and, and challenge yourself with here's a different situation that is not my position, but I'm going to learn like how a defender might think so that when I'm when I'm playing against a defender, you know, I can I can better understand how they're thinking and I can better get through them. Right. So those are kind of when we in practice, when we might be fully focused on improvement. But like you said, Sometimes in practice, we might be more in like a rehearsal or a scrimmage where we are more performing, right? And so, you know, if you're, if you're, if you are a coach, you or a player, you want to be clear about when you are trying to perform, when you're trying to fully improve and not perform, and when you are in a, in a practice, but in a performance situation, because what, what you said is that in practice, people are trying to prove themselves, right? So they can get playing time. If people are thinking that all the time, like all of practice is that way, they're not going to be working on their weaknesses. They're not going to be working on the things that they, they still make a lot of mistakes in because they're trying to prove themselves. So they're trying to avoid those things that are uncomfortable to them. So if you're a coach in particular, you want to be clear about in this, this time of the practice, you know, I want us to be challenging yourself, making lots of mistakes. I'm not going to be evaluating you. I'm not going to be thinking about who's going to play. But then in this other, like on, on, you know, Friday afternoon from two to three, we're going to have a scrimmage. We're going to see how good we've become. And that's when I'm going to be picking players. So that I want you to be in a performance zone in that scrimmage. And so when we make a distinguish that, then people can have the safety to really challenge themselves out of their comfort zone when we're not evaluating them. And then be clear about when we are evaluating them so that they shift to the performance zone then. Yeah, that's that's really good. So articulating the the leader, the coach, whoever is running the practice, letting them know when they're being evaluated and when they're supposed to be focused on learning and, and improving. That's that's really important for it. Yeah. And then if you're a player, if you're a player and you're not getting that from your coach, first you you want to be clear yourself and, and understand that. 
if you're always trying to prove yourself, you're going to be limiting yourself. So you have to figure out when am I going to work on improvement? And if I don't feel safe doing that in front of my coach, then I have to figure out how to do it at a different time. But also we can start these conversations, right? With the coach and with the players, maybe like, you know, like you said, I did like a 10 minute TEDx talk on the learning zone and the performance zone. We can watch that together and say, hey, is there an opportunity here for us to create more safety for us to take more risks at some of our practices? How do you advise companies to either integrate learning and performance zones or to create space for learning zones? Because, you know, I've run sales and marketing. I've, I've run organizations and it's performance, performance, performance all the time. Absolutely. And we are so busy. We have so much to do. So people in sports or performance arts, like people who play, you know, football, they have the privilege of being able to spend a lot of time fully, fully focused on improvement so that come, you know, the weekend, they can, they can perform or Monday nights, whatever. And so, so chapter one of my book is called the performance paradox is the problem. Chapter two introduces the learning zone and the performance on this 14 chapters. Chapter three gets to this problem that you're talking about. And, and the solution, which is that for most of us, the, the biggest opportunity is not in blocking time for, to fully focus on improvement. For most of us, the biggest opportunity is in shifting the way we get things done so that we get them done, not just with one goal in mind of getting things done, but with two goals in mind of getting things done and improving. We can do both of these things at the same time, learning zone and performance zone. So what does that mean? That means that we can't always be doing the same thing in the same way. Like if I'm always every day doing what I did the prior day, we can't get better if we don't change. So we have to think about what is at least one tweak that I'm going to be changing to see if that works better or doesn't. We need to be soliciting feedback is probably the number one strategy of how to learn in the workplace, whether it is soliciting feedback from our colleagues, soliciting feedback from our customers, because as social beings, most of what we're doing is we're trying to have an effect on somebody else, whether it is our boss or our colleagues or our partners or friends, our customers. And so we, we can learn so much by what's in their mind, what they're feeling and what effect our actions are having on them. So by soliciting feedback, we make that easy for them to share. We can uh, experiment. We can talk about our mistakes. Sometimes people say we learn from mistakes. But we, we learn from reflecting on mistakes and discussing mistakes. We learn from actually unpacking, okay, what led to this mistake and what can we do differently going forward? And all these things are things that don't have to take a lot of time. It's, it's about shifting how we work, not about blocking large blocks of, of time to, to do deliberate practice as, as in sports. So I want to get into feedback and learning from mistakes in, in a moment, but I want to ask you if you can give some examples of organizations that have blended this learning and these learning and performance zones effectively, and I'm, I'm thinking about corporations, not necessarily performing arts or athletics. Absolutely. So in, in 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 the book, I have a ton of them. One of them is Microsoft, which is to me really interesting because it's such a large company, right? It's like two hundred thousand people, and they have really been successful changing their culture in a number of different dimensions, including this kind of. Growth mindset is one of their five cultural pillars. And so when, when Satya Nadella was promoted to CEO in 2014, he also learned kind of from his wife, had learned about Carol Dweck's book, Mindset, and they, he learned about growth mindset from her and he thought it was really powerful. So he started conversations with his executive team about this and also about diversity, equity, and inclusion, also about 
becoming one Microsoft because there used to be what he described as fiefdoms of kind of silos who were more competing with each other rather than collaborating with each other. And and they got together as an executive team and, and said, hey, like, let's let's revive kind of let's let's think about what what we want our culture to be like. Let's reset and let's figure out what's what's the next phase of Microsoft going to be like. And and so they they identified five cultural pillars, growth mindset being one of them, and and they became very deliberate about teaching their staff and supporting their staff, uh, saying that part of what we are all supposed to be doing at work every day is working to continue to develop ourselves, right? To continue to change and, and become better over time. And that means that we need to shift how we work. In the, in the, in the past, we used to kind of just value the, the person who was sure of themselves and who seemed to be kind of the, the smartest and who was most confident that they had the right answer. Like that's not the behavior we want now, right? We, right now we want to, to surface ideas that may or may not be right. We want to be asking other people for ideas. We want to be experimenting. What are the behaviors? And, and you know, we want to solicit in feedback and things like that. And so it's a lot of messaging from the top. Uh, so, so I would say like leaders and, the leader, and there's lots of examples of companies that we can talk about, but three things that leaders can do to foster a culture of learning or learning while doing in the workplace are one, setting the stage. It's like, what is what do we value and what behaviors does that entail? Uh, so, so not just communicating that once, but communicating that all the time and, and, and reminding people because leaders are nine times more likely to be perceived as under-communicative than over-communicative. So we, we communicate a lot less than we think it's necessary for people to really change, rewire their brain, right? People need to have these thoughts on a regular basis and then neurons that wire together, that fire together, wire together. So we reconfigure our brain, but that requires kind of spaced repetition. Uh, so that's setting the stage is number one. Number two is setting up the systems and habits to improve. And we could talk about lots of examples of that in different companies, but what do you want people to be doing to, to perform and to improve? And what are the systems and tools and habits uh, that we want to foster? And third is model learning. Often leaders feel like they need to have all the answers and to act like knowers. They, they then they get perceived as know-it-alls. And then when people, even if they talk about the value of learning, even if they do engage in learning on their own, when other people aren't watching, you know, the behaviors app, you know, speak louder than the words. So people see them as know-it-alls. And so they start uh, behaving like know-it-alls as well. That's a really interesting one because everything you've said if, in order for this to work seems to require an incredible amount of psychological safety. And when you have a leader who feels like they know it all, feels like psychological safety is absent in a lot of cases. And so that that idea of modeling the learning just demonstrates I'm human too. I don't know. I don't have all of the answers, but we can collaborate on decisions. We can work through decisions together. We'll find the right way. That that really shows that people are safe to kind of make mistakes or come up with different ideas that may or may not work. I, I think that's okay. So I just I just felt like there's there's a real important psychological safety element that's required here. Absolutely. And and it's sometimes leaders struggle with the idea of, okay, how do I model being a learner? while also instilling confidence that I am competent and that the organization is going to succeed, right? Because sometimes they feel like, 
okay, if I, if I say that I'm not sure or that I want other people's ideas, like, isn't that projecting weakness? Are people going to lose confidence in me and in the organization? But actually, like, what we, what we all want is to act like learners that's going to make us and the organization stronger, right? So in a growth mindset, even if you think about an Olympic gold medalist, they are always continue to get even better, right? They're trying to go beyond what they know and get feedback to get even better. So great performers use feedback all the time in order to gain even better. And the world is so complex. And so to, 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 to bring to the table that we're starting always with the assumption that I might be wrong. Like, here's what I think, but I'm always open to being wrong and to learning from other people. That makes me stronger. It, it will increase my knowledge and my understanding and my skills. And if we're doing that in collaboration, it's going to increase our competence and capabilities. Um, and so the best way to adapt to change, the fast changing world, to leverage change and to drive change is for us to behave in this way. And that's going to make us more confident that we're going to be successful. You have a chapter, chapter four, called Six Essential Learning Zone Strategies. Do you want to talk about those a little bit? That chapter is about examining a few really important learning zone strategies that any of us can use and some things that sometimes get problematic the way we go about them. So an example is experimenting. Sometimes, like an, an example is in, in General Mills, which is a big kind of food consumer packaged goods company. They, and they're, they're three miles away. Uh, I mean, yeah, I'm in, I'm in Minneapolis, right. so yeah, that's so right. they're, they're really close to me, yeah. There you go. So kind of their head of innovation there, his name's Olivier Perrin. He, he and his team came up with an idea for an innovative yogurt that they got really, really excited about. And they learned that in order, so they wanted to test it. They wanted to produce a, a, quanti a small quantity of this and test it and learn and then figure out if this could be a feasible product. And what they learned that in order to produce a little bit of this product, it, it cost a relatively amount, high amount of money. And to produce a much larger quantity of this product, it didn't cost much at, more at all. And so they, they, they talked about it and they said, how are you going to go about this experiment? And they decided to just produce a, a larger amount of it, you know, test it in, in, a, in an area that was about 20% the area of the United States. And if it worked, if this was like, they were really excited about it, they thought this was going to be a great success. If it worked, then they would be that much further ahead in the rollout and ahead of the competition because uh, they already, they would already be in 20% of the United States. And when they test it out, they put it in all those kind of retailers, uh, grocery stores, they learned that in most of those stores, the product wasn't performing very well. In a few of them, it was, and they learned pretty quickly why it, that why that was the case, what they needed to change. But because they were in such high area with so many relationships, uh, it was a lot more complex to make the change, to iterate. And it took them a long time to to learn, to, to kind of produce the next version of the product to test. And the retailers, the grocery stores, lost confidence in the product. Because they were saying, this product took shelf space for way too long. We could have had something there that would have sold more. And that's really high stakes for us. We're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to test this product. And they had to discontinue the product um, as a result of that. And what, they, what, what this teaches is that it, what they realized is that they became too performance oriented in their experimentation, right? They mixed performance with learning. And often when we're experimenting or if we focus on learning and how to learn fastest and how to iterate faster, then we can get to scale, successful scale sooner. Because then once, once we are ready to scale, 
then we can scale successfully. So to be clear, they should have done the smaller batch, really confined the rollout of it and experimented versus trying to save money by expanding the rollout and the, you know covering 20% of the United States. They should have maybe done it in one or 2% of the US. That was their conclusion, and I agree with it. But it also doesn't mean that everybody should do the same thing. I also talked no, about right. another, another company, right? Another company called Scratch Labs, and they also are a food company. They produce energy foods for athletes, for high-performance athletes. And so they take a different approach because they don't work through retailers, which when you, when you work through a retailer, you have to kind of make a decision about what's going to be in, this, in the shelf six months out, and it's a long process to make these changes. But they sell direct to consumers through their website or through Amazon. And so they make a conscious choice to like do a little bit of focus groups and small scale experimentation early on, but pretty quickly, like put the product on the shelf in the website on Amazon and then see how it goes, like get, get consumer feedback. And then if the product goes great, then they can quickly put more flavors out of the product and just like have, add more advertising and move quickly. If it doesn't go well, they can just kind of take it off the shelf. Their, cons- their customers know them for being innovative. So the fact that they're always kind of changing and trying things is something that is consistent with their brand. And so that works for them, right? That, that, that makes it a learning zone way for them to work that, that doesn't work as well for General Mills, which, which you know, needs to iterate fast. And they both need to iterate fast. But General Mills can't iterate fast through their regular channels with retailers, so they have to find other ways to learn. Let's talk about feedback for a moment, because I'm going to assume that you're going to say that that's one of the more important elements in developing learners and being successful in the learning zone. How should we be giving feedback and how should we be receiving feedback? I think the most important thing, most powerful thing when it comes to feedback is to solicit feedback, you know, frequently and from different people, not just from the same person. So broadly and getting again, psychological safety. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you have to have that, you know, if you're, if you're going to be confident in, in soliciting feedback. Absolutely. Yeah. You need, you need a culture of psychological safety, but soliciting feedback also creates psychological safety because if I, if I ask for your feedback, especially if I frame it and I say, Hey, I'm a big fan of feedback. I always ask for feedback. I would love your thoughts on how I went about this conversation and what could I do differently. I actually asked some question. I'm going to ask you after this conversation because I, I, I ask it to every podcast host. And, and that, what that does is it puts me in control. I'm saying I'm confident enough to ask for feedback because I know like great performers ask for feedback all the time. And that makes it easy for me to hear it. It also makes it easy for you to give it because if I don't solicit it, you don't know how I'm going soli- to re- I'm gonna react to, to feedback. So soliciting feedback creates psychological safety, but it's obviously not the only thing. We also need to align, set the stage on is feedback something that's important to us, something that we want to be doing on a regular basis and are our leaders doing that on a regular basis. So, so soliciting it is the most po- powerful thing when we give it. Feedback is part of great Part of what makes a great leader is making a great teacher and teaching what these things are. So feedback is something that a lot of people are afraid of, or they might think of as something that only incompetent people get feedback or need feedback, that competent people don't need or get feedback. So we need to change how people think about what these things are, right? And that involves, again, like regular, regular communication, but feedback. So feedback is, is a way for us to learn 
about what's in our mind, you know, how, what effect we're having on other people. And so when, when, when I'm giving feedback, you know, an approach that I like to take, which is described, I, I bought the, I, I learned this in, in graduate school from the professors that wrote a book called Connect. They're, they're David Bradford and, and Carol Robin. And the, the, what I learned from them is that when, when we're giving feedback, we want to focus on what we know, which is the, the, the behaviors that are observable, that are objective, and how those behaviors affected me and like what, what effect is having on me, as opposed to like making assumptions about what's in other people's heads. Often we say, you know, you're trying to hurt me or you're trying to do this or why are you feeling X? And often we're making assumptions that are often wrong. And so when we say, you know, hey, you know, why did you try to do this? And you didn't try to do that. And you're, t- people tend to react defensively, right? And so if we just focus on the observable behavior and what effect that has, that, that is a much safer way to go about the conversation and to be curious about how is that landing for you? How do you see it? So that we're not, we're not giving feedback from a know-it-all, you know, we are the judges of what's good and what's bad, but here's what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? And, and uh, am I doing something that's getting in the way? Like, so it's a conversation. And similarly with receiving it, Again, like receiving it as information that about that is true to the other person, and it 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 that's always helpful. Like for me to know what you're thinking is always going to be helpful to me. Maybe what you're saying is not something that's going to resonate with me. Maybe it's not something that I'm going to act upon because I might be hearing different things from other people, or you might not start, not know certain things that are important in in the in the situation. So I might not need to act upon the feedback, but you're giving me a gift by sharing what's in your mind. And so I need to hear it, not react right away is often helpful. And just kind of thank you for this. You took a risk in sharing what something else in your mind. And I really appreciate that because then I was able to see more about what you're thinking. And that's, that makes me stronger. We talked a little bit about mistakes, but is there anything else that you would add around what great organizations do to handle mistakes or great leaders, how they handle mistakes? We can think about four different kinds of mistakes. One is the stretch mistakes, which is the mistakes we make when we are in our learning zone, trying things that may or may not work. We're experimenting. We're trying something that might or might not work. We want to have a lot of those mistakes, but we want to do it in, in, in times and spaces that are safe, both psychological safe, psychologically safe, and also physically safe, where we're not going to hurt anybody. So we want to identify when those times are. There's the second kind of mistake is the high stakes mistakes, which is mistakes that do cause harm and whether it's in our revenues or physical harm. And so we want to minimize those. And we do that by being clear that at those times we're going to be in our performance zone, whether we're driving a school bus or packing a parachute, right? Or like in charge of a nuclear plant. We don't want to make mistakes. We want to try to avoid it, right? Number three is the sloppy mistakes, which are mistakes we make that we should have known better. And often these mistakes are not important. I, I like to, if I can, if it's not important, I like to laugh about them, take a picture, share it with friends or family so that they can laugh too. But sometimes the sloppy mistakes do create damage. And so when that happens, in any mistake, we can reflect and think about what can I learn from this mistake and what can I do differently going forward to avoid this mistake? And when with sloppy mistakes, when we, if we want to avoid them in the future, the, we often surface opportunities to foster more focus or to change our systems so that we, we don't kind of make mistakes in the periphery. Often 
we were focused on one thing and we make a mistake on something that we weren't focused on. So what can I, how can I change my systems to avoid that mistake is, is something often is a conclusion. It's like if I, if I spill my smoothie all over myself, um, which sometimes I have done, uh, I take a picture, I, I have a good time, but if I want to, if I want to avoid it in the future, then I might kind of change where in my desk I put the glass, right? So that's going to avoid the mistake in the future. And the fourth kind of mistake is the aha moment mistake, which is when we do something as we intended, but then we realize it was the wrong thing to do. So we have an aha moment. Like if I, you know, my spouse is upset, I go to her trying to console her and I problem solve to figure out how to solve the problem. And she says, you know, I don't need problem solving right now. I don't want problem solving. I just want you to be with me and empathize with me. That's like, that's an aha moment mistake. Okay, I, I, I tried it. I, meant, I did what I meant to do, which is problem solve. And I realized that was the wrong thing to do. So with aha moment mistakes, we can't, they're not as, we can't elicit them as proactively as stretch mistakes, which we can, we can elicit by taking on challenges and going beyond the known. But when they happen, when the humble mistakes happen, we want to treasure those because they're really treasure, you know, very precious opportunities for learning. So we want to pay attention to it and think about what I can learn from this. And we can surface aha moment mistakes by soliciting feedback. When we solicit feedback, we give the other person the opportunity to share things that we didn't know, we haven't, we didn't have in mind, and that can surface aha moments as well. For many of us who are working in the business world. Is there a formula for how much we should be spending on learning and how much we should be spending on performing? You know, I would say like 80% of our time or 90% of our time in some cases, depends on the job, depends on the industry. But we, when we're getting things done, we can quickly solicit feedback. We can quickly like pay attention to what surprises us, the mistakes that we make. We can listen to other people's ideas and ask follow-up questions. That doesn't take time, but it is about not just being worried about getting things done, but also how can I learn along the way? And and it, it varies on what the what the what the profession is and what the industry is and where we are in our development. But but I think most the vast majority of the time we can be both getting things done and improving at the same time. If you were to give advice to a CEO around how their organization should address the performance paradox, what would you say to that person? First is for them to grapple with the ideas and, and their ideas about leadership and whether they feel that some of the, that they're doing the things that are going to foster a culture of learning and performing and risk-taking and feedback and mistake, you know, and examining mistakes to learn from them um, so that they can grapple with, is this, and they can do that by, you know, they can watch my TED talk, they can read my book and just grapple grapple with these ideas and whether this is something that they want more in their organization, right? And so if it is something that they want more in their organization, they can start a conversation with their executive team, just like Satya Nadella did, uh, where they expose, you know, an article or a video with them and they have conversations. How are we doing? How do people think that we're doing with regards to this? What are opportunities for us to improve? And if they feel like they really want to like make a, a transformation like Microsoft has, they can embark on a project to do that, to identify what are the values that we want to promote here and to communicate to our employees and how do we want them to behave? How is that different from the way we're behaving now? And be clear about how you communicate that. So that's the setting the stage. Be clear about what systems people are going to be using in order to improve. Um, and, and setting those in place, giving people the opportunities uh, to, to engage in those ways. Like at New York Life, 
you know, they encourage agents, insurance agents, to form what they call study groups. It's completely optional, but it turns out that they, they, the greatest performers that sell the most, they're the most, the, the ones that engage in these study groups the most by far. And there's a huge, like very clear correlation between how much you sell and whether you, you, you participate in the study group. And we see this across industries, like a clear choice dental implants, they, they use videos of themselves to observe and to learn from those videos. When patients consent to it, they actually, they have videos in every consult room and, and, and the person, their professional can watch themselves on video and, and, and see what they want to adjust. They also want, they also can share the video with a coach or a colleague and get feedback. And that video, if they do that, it can only be used for development purposes, not for evaluation, just like we were talking about before. When people feel like they're evaluated, they are not going to be showing their mistakes or their flaws or what they're trying to improve. So that's the second is the system. And the third is like, how are we going to model being learners, right? How am I, how can I model being a learner while still instilling confidence that I'm competent and that the, the organization is headed for success? Yeah, it's a, you talked about the video and I don't know if you are familiar with Ray Dalio and what they do at at uh, Bridgewater, but yes. they video all the meetings and they review the video and it just blew my mind, but it's like this, this culture of transparency and this culture of, of brutal honesty and feedback. And I was just like, wow, that is, that is really, really wild. Yeah. And they're the best, you know, they're the largest hedge fund in the world. He just, he started that from his room. And they have created a very strong culture of learning where they, the recording of the meetings is available to anybody to listen to or watch and, and learn from and give feedback. Like, hey, this thing that you did in this time, this part of the meeting was really helpful. Or, hey, this thing that you did was part of the meeting, like really gone in the way. Here's why. And they can look at the recording and talk about it. And they also have a team that like looks at the recordings of key meetings and, and extract some key parts of this meeting and some key lessons. And they distribute that to the organization saying, hey, here's something at this meeting that either went really well or, or not very well that we can all learn from. So that's another powerful way. And one thing that they said, Clinch, is that sometimes people are afraid of feedback or they react defensively to feedback. They might say, this person doesn't know what they're talking about or they're just trying to hurt me. But video always tells the truth or a recording always tells the truth. So that's one, one benefit of, the, of their recording. And, you know, two follow on things with that, it, they're very clear that it's, that organization is not for everybody, right? Not everybody is ready for that brutal honesty. And the, the second thing is he's not immune to it either. <laughs> you know, like he, he, he totally accepts constructive criticism or feedback or, you know, that brutal honesty too. It's, it's really an interesting culture from, from what I have read and observed. It is very interesting. And yes, it is not for everybody. It's only for them. Then they're so strong because they have such a filter of like great learners who want to work there. But in his TED talk of Ray Dalio, and I read his book, Principles, which is great too. But in his TED talk, he gives an example. You know, this is an email that I received from this employee. And he said, Ray, in this meeting, I would give you a D minus for this reason. So what is he doing? He is modeling learning. He's saying, this is, this is how I want people in my organization to behave. I want them to do exactly what he did, to give me the feedback and give everybody else feedback. And this is why. This is why this is important. I, I love that because it was an email. The person giving the feedback had their name attached to it. Yeah. And he completely accepted it. 
which sets the tone. It supports everything that you've talked about. And he doesn't just accept it. He celebrates it. And he says, yeah. look at this. Right. This is what I want more of. Yeah. When's the last time you ran home with a D minus on your report card? <laughs> and Satya Nadella, you know, he he went when he early in 2015, he, he became CEO in 2014. 2015, he went to a, a conference called the Grace Hopper Conference and he was in a panel and he was asked a question and he answered the question. And then the moderator of the panelist of the panel who was on her his board, she said, Actually, I disagree with you on this. It was a question about women in the workplace. And he said, I disagree with you. Here's why. And then people clap. And he's like, thank you. Like, I hadn't thought about that. I'm going to think about that. And, and he reacted kind of, in a, he asked more questions. Yeah, he reacted in a, in a learning-oriented way. And then later, he emailed his, the whole company. And he actually, he said, the prior day before the conference, he had sent an email to the whole com company saying, I'm going to go to this conference. I look forward to learning at this conference. And so after the conference, he sent an email saying, I, I said I was going to go to learn. I learned a valuable lesson. I answered this question incorrectly. Mary was right. And so now, you know, I have learned something useful. And, and he's, again, modeling being a learner and celebrating and telling everybody what he's doing and the mistakes he's learning from. I want to ask you about growth mindset. But before I do, is there anything else that I should have asked you about the performance paradox that I didn't? No, I mean, if you if to kind of transition a little bit to growth mindset is that growth mindset is the belief that we can change, the belief that humans can improve, and which means that we have we have to change. We can improve without change. Now, the performance paradox is about how to change. It's about how do we improve, and these two things go hand in hand, right? They they reinforce each other. We can't learn how to change. So we can't believe that we can change it unless we have effective strategies to change and to improve. And so that's how the two come together into something that reinforces each other. Yeah. And, and I wonder, I, I think most people who will be listening to this understand what a growth mindset is. I wonder if you have any data on what percentage of us are people who, who understand or who espouse this growth mindset and what percentage have fixed mindsets? First of all, we don't we don't kind of categorize people into somebody who is kind of growth mindset or somebody who has fixed mindset. It's not binary. It's something that we we all are in a fixed mindset part of the time about certain abilities. So we might think that athletic ability or creativity is fixed, while we might think that kind of poetry or writing is something we can develop. So so we each have an opportunity to increase our self awareness around what qualities or abilities do I tend to see as fixed? And we also vary by who we're thinking about. We might think of ourselves as a learner, but then label other people in fixed ways, whether people in the other political party that is different from ours or, you know, some of our colleagues or et cetera. Um, but having said that, kind of in, in populations, they, they used to see about 40% of people tended to be more on the growth-minded side in what they were measuring, like, for example, intelligence, whether they thought people could become smarter or whether they thought that intelligence was fixed in people. That was about 40% kind of thought that intelligence was fixed in people and about 20% were kind of somewhere in the middle. Right now, you know, it's hard to, because a lot of people now kind of have, they kind of know what answer you want. You know, they, they you want like the growth, growth mindset answer. And so it's, 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 it's harder to, to measure it now. Um, but, you know, I don't have like a particular number around that. And then, you know, this probably brings us back to the, the performance paradox, but how do we move somebody from a fixed 
mindset on a particular topic to a growth mindset? Yeah. So step number one is to become more self-aware because some of us kind of have labeled ourselves or branded ourselves as growth minded. And that's, that's good that we want to be in a growth mindset, but there are usually things that we, we see in a fixed way. Like for example, for me, I don't believe that I can kind of listen to a podcast while I read a book. I believe that's an ability that I, I can't develop. That's a fixed mindset. And so I can think about, you know, I don't believe that I can get a full night's sleep on very short time. Like that's a fixed mindset. It might be true or it might not be true, but it's affecting my behavior because I'm not trying to think about two things at the same time. I'm not trying to get a full night's sleep on very short time. So it, it has consequences. And then, but often for most of us, when we start reflecting on what abilities and qualities do I tend to see as fixed, whether it's the ability to empathize with people, right? Or the ability to better understand people who are different than us. We, we, we then identify kind of how that behavior is getting in the way. So self-awareness, I would say step number one. Step number two is identifying what is one ability at least that I want to develop in myself and what learning zone habits am I going to be engaging in to improve that ability? Often when I ask people, what do you want to improve? They write something down and then later we reflect on, okay, are you engaging in the learning zone with regards to that thing on a regular basis? Then people say, oh no, you know, I'm just kind of performing and trying, thinking that I'm gonna get better that way. So being deliberate about what habits am I trying to build and then reminding ourselves regularly of our intention to engage in those habits. Like for example, for me, every morning, I remind myself of what I'm trying to get better at. And I think that that's a really powerful, simple thing, morning habit that kind of fosters, it primes a growth mindset and it primes the learning zone. So it reminds us every day. And then it, it we, we start noticing more opportunities for us to learn and improve more throughout our days. And the more we do that, the more we end up being in a growth mindset. So learning kind of how, what is it that I want to do like to improve and just reminding and working on it on a regular basis. One of the things that I have learned over the last five years of doing this project, and I've been exploring trends that are shaping the way we live and work, is that knowing is the enemy of learning. If you know something, then you just kind of fix yourself into, into that thing. And I think that explains a lot of our political polarization. I have a, I can't find it right now, but somewhere on my desk, I have a piece of paper with two columns. One is guaranteed and one is impossible. And over the five years, so like what's guaranteed, death, taxes, poverty, you know, these things that just seem like it's, they're absolutely guaranteed. And then what's impossible, like, you know, arrive a human being on Mars in my lifetime. Like that was in the impossible column at the beginning of this project, 2018. I crossed the line through that. I truly believe that we will be on Mars by the end of this decade, you know? And, and so this idea of, you know, I think we need to know less in order to learn more. I, I think that's really an important element to, you know, just succeeding in life and, and to growing and as you're saying and and so if space is expanding right then our knowledge should continue to expand and what we know should shrink if that makes sense yeah i so agree with you and the way that i like to 
think about that and remind myself of that puts me into that kind of state of not knowing is to just always remind myself that I can never be a hundred percent sure. Like that there's always some probability that I'm wrong. Uh, and certainly that I don't understand something fully, that there's a different perspective. And I, you know, so like, you know, the, that there's always like the, the thing that I can be the most sure of is death of the things that you talked about. The, the death is something that, that is for sure. And then like there's, you know, David Sinclair, who is, has kind of like reversed aging on mice. Right, right. And he's talking about, you know, a generation or two out, people living several centuries and that maybe death is something that might not be. Like, so it's like, even that, right? Even that is something that I can't be a hundred percent sure. Completely of. agree. And, and if we download yeah. our consciousness, if, if we're able to download our consciousness and move our consciousness from one vessel one body to a, another body, maybe that is living in the future. Maybe in, in three centuries or five centuries from now, maybe that's living or 50 years from now, who knows? But but yes, everything you're saying, like what David Sinclair has done, and I had a guy named Sergey Young on the show, and he talked about this 200-year life, and he believes he's going to make it to 200. And if he can make it to 200, he's only 50 years old. That's 150 years from now, maybe 500, maybe 2,000. I mean, like that... Yeah, exactly what you're saying. You can never be 100% sure. I, I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, 99%, 99%. No, yeah, that's right. Like, <laughs> no, I mean, you, you know, I'm, like if I'm really, really sure about something, it's like, could be, it might be like 99.99%, but, but there's always a chance, right? And so the most extreme way that I remind myself that works for me, it might sound a little, you know, out there, is... I cannot be even 100% sure that I exist. You know, there's, there's some chance that this experience that I'm having right now is some sort of dream. Like I've, I've had dreams where I wake up and I, re I thought that I was real. And all of a sudden I wake up and I realize that it wasn't real. So is that, could that be happening right now? And so if I can't be sure that I exist, you know, I can't be sure of anything else. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Oh, no, this is a, a great conversation, Don. And thank you. Thank you for, for what you do. I really enjoyed this. Where can people learn more about you and your book? Sure. So my, my book is called The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. It's available wherever books are sold. I have a monthly newsletter that is about learning, about how do we, we can incorporate learning into our lives. And that's at briseño.com, my last name.com. And I'm active on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Eduardo, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week when I interview Professor of Leadership at Harvard Business School, Dr. Amy Edmondson. She's a pioneer in the research of psychological safety and we will discuss her new book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. It's going to be a phenomenal companion to the conversation I just had with Eduardo Bersigno. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius. <laughs>